2: Nothing so hey friends, today's guest is lead vocalist and guitarist Glenn Phillips of the Santa Barbara, California rock band Toad the Wet Sprocket. Together, Glenn and I dissect their 1991 breakout smash hit, All I Want, taken from their third album and major label debut, Fear. Glenn was very upfront and honest regarding the role and leadership that producer Gavin McKillop provided during the sessions. How he took a good band, albeit a ragtag group of musician friends, and made them into a cohesive rock and roll machine. We've heard this before on Krista Makes a Podcast, where a band or artist feels like a particular track is just another song in the bunch that was written super quickly without much thought, and was almost left on the cutting room floor. Such was the case with All I Want, which was buried as the 10th song out of 12 on the album. At first I thought Glenn was being dismissive regarding the song's lyrical content, But truth be told, there is deep meaning behind the song's lyrics. And it was funny hearing how the band was staunchly against doing radio remixes for their songs back in the day, only to realize through the wisdom of age that it was the right thing to do. Something I can truly relate to. For all this and some deep philosophical thought, don't touch that dial. Hey,
1: hey,
2: have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard?
0: Yeah, it was bizarre to not tour for 18 months or whatever it is and then just did two months with Toad and I had what was supposed to be three shows that turned into two weeks solo and of course it went back so I only had a week at home to basically unpack and repack and just start to calm down and then was out again.
2: Well, uh, before we get going here, I I just want to say that in 1991, the song we're going to talk about today, All I Want, uh, was released in 91. That was my first year of college at the University of Florida. Uh, This song, as you know, was everywhere. And we always talk on my show, uh, Chris and I always talk about memories. And those memories that are attached to songs, and it's been it's been such a treat for me to to I mean I you hear this song everywhere still today grocery stores wherever you're at but to sit down and really dive into this song man I went straight back to my first apartment in college I have such great memories of that time period and I love that's what music still does to me and I've always I've always loved this song it's such oh, such you. a such a great great pop song so I want to give the listeners a little bit. Uh, A little bit of of info on Toad. The band was formed in 1986, just outside of Santa Barbara, California. Uh, The members having known each other since high school. Uh, Glenn was only 15 when the band started. They self-released their first album, Bread and Circus, in 1989. The follow-up album, Pale, was released in 1990. Uh, During the recording of the album, the band signed to Columbia Records. Uh, Their third album, Fear, was released in 1991, featuring the hit singles All I Want and Walk on the Ocean, another amazing song. Uh, I I struggled. I wanted to do Walk, I wanted to do All I Want, but but I went with the the real big one, I guess. They're both huge. But uh, both songs reached the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100, and the album went platinum. Uh, Fear was recorded at Granny's House in Reno, Nevada. It was produced by Gavin McKillop, who had worked as an engineer on 80s bands such as The Human League, Simple Minds, and Midnight Oil, and went on to produce albums from The Goo, Goo Dolls, Bare Naked Ladies, and MXPX. The band released their next album, Dulcinea, in 1994, which spawned the hit singles Fall Down, which reached number one on the U.S. Modern Rock charts, and Something's Always Wrong. This album went gold. Their next album, Coil, came out in 97 and featured the hit Come Down. In 1998, the band formally broke up and Glenn started a solo career during the breakup. He has released five studio solo albums to date and toured constantly behind them. The band worked together on and off for years. In December of 2010, they released their first new studio track, In 11 Years, which was a holiday track, It Doesn't Feel Like Christmas, which I went and listened to that. It's awesome. A cover of a Sam Phillips original. Uh, The band released a new album, New Constellation, in October of 2013 and their latest record starting in now was released on August 27th, 2021. So just want to congratulate you on, on still being out there and all your success.
0: Thank you. It's distant, but <laughs>
2: it's appreciated. Well, it's, you know, as you know, to to navigate as long as you guys have through this business, there's uh, lots of peaks and, and valleys that, <laughs> that
0: we there's go lots through. Of, lots of peaks and valleys. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're now, we've been on a, a low mesa for a long time, but it's been all right.
2: That's probably the best piece of advice I ever read. I read Steven Tyler's uh, autobiography years ago and then he said, you know, if you can ride the peaks and the valleys, you know, you might have a chance in this business, might have a chance in this business, you know. But uh, take us back to to this time period, uh, 1990 or so. Do you remember writing All I Want?
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember, I don't remember exactly where I was uh, writing the main kind of Brun, dun, 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 dun. Uh, I would tend to play these like picky mechanical parts that I couldn't quite pull off so Todd would kind of riffify them and make them sound more musical and I remember the the initial version of the song that I had the melody was a little more like it was all these long strings and Dean early on kind of saying could you just have less in there. (laughs) (laughs) I think his best contribution to the song was just asking me to sing, sing less words. And so we don't like to
2: hear that sometimes as songwriters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's true. It was there. There was a lot about it that I like. And when we did the first demo, I had this melody that was kind of relentless and yeah, we cleared it out we almost, Didn't record that song and almost didn't record uh, Good Intentions, which was a a single later on. Just because we thought they sounded too pop and we were identifying ourselves as an indie band and like really deep and you know this <laughs> even though the verses are 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 a little bit melancholy the chorus sounds super happy and we we that wasn't kind of our vibe so um it almost didn't make the record And even as far as being a single, uh, I think it was our third single. The album had already been out for nine months. Well,
2: let me talk about that for a second, because I noticed that the song is the 10th track out of the 12 song record. And you don't bury a hit single at number 10. So did you just not think this was the one? I mean,
0: if you ask Donnie Einer or any of the people at Sony, they knew from day one that this was it and it was all part of their genius setup. But nobody had any (laughs) idea. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) yeah uh or it would or it wouldn't have come out after night i mean once our product manager uh tom gibson actually like they were ready to stop the album and send us back to the studio and he was the one who was like one more single just one more single and let's see what happens uh but you were asking about the writing um i mean mostly i just i remember like you know we had a uh had a practice place near some storage spaces in, in, you know, Santa Barbara. And uh, we had like, there were these old Akai cassette, like it was a large, like a VHS cassette style, 12 oh, yeah. track recorders with a built-in mixing board. We'd graduated from the the four track to that thing. And so we had, had that. And I mean, we were, you know, we were just going in and so excited to make our first real record, right. We'd done these two records you know, I was still living, we were all living at our parents' houses and made the first record almost by accident. A friend had asked if we'd be his backup band on a couple songs. And he said, you know, for payment, I'll have you guys record two of your own songs, you know, just live in the studio. And sure, it took a couple hours and we're like, that was easy. Like, if we do eight more, we'll have a record. We should do that. And- (laughs) And so it was a big deal when we did Fear to to know that we were going to be going in with a, you know, a real producer and a real studio. And we wanted to make, you know, at that time, like I was really into Peter Gabriel and Tears for Fears and Talk Talk and these bands that made like these big, awesome records. And i We wanted to make a big, awesome record and we'd been, you know, done these two live in the studio records and we wanted to make something that was once again, more in that, like, for me, Tears for Fears, Talk Talk, Peter Gabriel, World—that was the stuff that I loved
2: the most. Yeah, those are timeless records, and not just saying that because you're here in front of me, but but I think this song's timeless. You know, this song's 30 years old. It was done pre Pro Tools to tape, and it just uh, it sounds it sounds awesome still.
0: Thank you. Well, I mean, Gavin was a really great producer. I mean, we we wrote all these songs before, demoed them all up and talked to a lot of different producers and Gavin just taught us so much about you know getting the rhythm section to agree you know getting the bass and the drums to be really locked up like taught us how to make our arrangements progress how to do things that weren't always the same number of bars how to have these a combination of like predictability and non-linearity right and almost mm-hmm. like what like what I talked about earlier with the the um The verse melody, you know, just that it's first verse is nothing so loud, it's hearing when we lie, truth is not kind, you said neither, that balances nicely, but the second one is nothing so loud, closing the heart when all we need is to free the soul, you know, it's like doing these little things that keep you, that are locked enough into a pattern that it's recognizable, but that are also being surprising enough that you don't just get bored that it's not the yeah. same thing over and over again and and gavin was so good at um helping us have these arrangements be dynamic and have these small differences happen and having everything kind of lock in and complement each other he taught us so much about arrangement I uh, it was a really wonderful relationship with him to take these songs and try to bring them all to the next level. And, and once again, I think we stepped in with a reasonably strong, you know, collection of material as well, but yeah, it's just funny to think that, that, all I want was, once again, for us, it was a little too pop. We weren't sure if it should be a part of things or not.
2: <laughs> well, we're we're up over, I think, uh, it's been a year and a half now, this this podcast, and up over like 80 episodes. I can't tell you how many times I've heard exactly that. This is just another song. We didn't really think, it almost didn't make the album, and, and here it is, one, one of your signature tracks.
1: Yeah,
0: and I don't know if it's entirely representative of, us as a band (laughs) but it's got i mean it's got a strong bridge which i think is a thing that we really liked was having a bridge that would take you to kind of some soaring other place and i will say i think all i want is one of our strongest bridges oh Um, yeah
2: that's for sure that bridge is great
0: but also in terms of being a vocal group and having counter melody be a, a big part of what we do right having that that thing in the chorus of you know the call and answering and the tight harmonies is also a big part of Toad's sound
2: well that's what i loved about uh, you know especially this record back back when uh, it came out is you know the two singles the main singles from the record all i want and walk on the ocean it, it sounded almost like two different bands but that in this instance is a good thing you know a lot of times it's like oh they don't they don't have an identity but i think that that uh shows you the depth of the songwriting
0: it is one of the weird things with toad i, I you know I can, I still have this issue. (laughs) I I write uh, in a lot of different modalities. Um, I feel like Todd's music generally, and Walk on the Ocean was his music, uh, All I Want Was My Song. There's a way in which his songs like pull us a little more into the center, because they come, he has such a signature sound on guitar and such this, Melodic kind of parts-driven way of playing. You know, his solos are composed. They're melodic. They're not about like a bunch of rock licks. They're about melody. And yeah. uh, his parts are really... You know, taking out melodic elements and they're um, they're very composed. I guess is the best way, as opposed to being like a guy in a blues rock band where you can kind of, you know, you're just comping chordally and doing whatever. He's always doing these counter melodies, and it m- brings this signature sound to the band. I mean, also Dean's bass playing, and he's man just not to be busy in a cloudy way, but to be a super melodic bass player. The way he and Randy worked together really is also a signature sound. I mean, you know, Randy was this very kind of lyrically oriented drummer. And so I feel like Todd's songs brought things into a certain center sonically. And then my songs were all over the map, but the band helped and the sound of the voices together helped kind of identify and pull everything into this center that I don't know if if we'd had less of a sound instrumentally, I think it it really would have been, it wouldn't have had any sense of continuity. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we had just enough of a signature sound to kind of draw everything in towards this center, which has made it hard for me making solo records, because my songs are still all over the map, but I have no idea what I sound like. <laughs> and I mean, it's a thing that I've noticed. I, I feel like I've had great songs on my solo records, but they're not necessarily great records because Toad has such a signature to it.
2: A band is the sum of their parts. I've always said it, and and, and I, I, I can completely agree with everything you just said. I've, I think I've written some great songs outside of the band, but they just, for me, they don't have that cohesiveness of, of what I do with my band.
0: Yeah, there's an automatic thing that we just do that works. And if I tried to replicate it in other projects, it would just be chasing something. But it's definitely... Yeah. Greater than the sum of its parts.
2: Well, you touched on producer Gavin McKillop and you had mentioned that, you know, he had kind of reeled in your melodies a little bit. Do you recall the demo uh, changing a lot from when you got into the studio with this particular track?
0: I mean, the main things that shifted uh, the original lyric, once again, I did some trimming to take it down. Gavin was really good at being Socratic as a, as a um, producer, meaning. I've sat with other people who will immediately take the guitar out of your hands and go, no, you should play this. and You should do this. And Gavin would just listen to the song and he'd be like, it sounds too dense in the beginning. And he would just say that like, there's too much, the melodies, it's just too much. And that was actually Dean's comment before we got to, to Gavin. And I, I kind of rewrote and took out a lot, but Gavin was great at being like, Huh, third verse, you're just repeating the lyrics from the first verse. It's really don't you have anything else to say? Are you done? I'm getting bored. Uh, <laughs> and he would he would often say things in terms of I'm getting bored or seems like a cop out <laughs> or there was a reference to sandwiches in one song. He hated food references. And he wanted me to take it out. I didn't. <laughs> uh, he couldn't stand food in songs, but. A lot of what he did was just kind of state or he would say, God, you guys are playing exactly the same thing. You're both just really strumming. Nothing's happening. It's either one of you stop playing guitar or one of you should do something different or harmonize differently. And he was an engineer, but he never picked up an instrument and played a note in the studio with us. He let us find every single solution, but he knew where solutions needed to be found. And so yeah. he really taught us to be conscious of those things and to find the and to find the answers on our own.
2: That's so awesome though, that you guys were that young of a band. You know, your first, you know, real studio with a real producer, and that you were that receptive. that's, yeah. that's awesome because a lot of times when you're a young artist, you don't want to hear that. Wait, my, this is boring, or you know, don't tell me how to write my songs.
0: Well, and I will say also that we we didn't have massive budgets. We did a lot of pre-production. So we demoed these things up and he would come in and work with us for a week or two and then disappear and then come back. So we had months of getting these songs in shape so that by the time we hit the studio, there wasn't a lot of question. I mean, there would be, you know, things on overdubs or some arrangemental questions here and there. But in general, like especially in tightening up the rhythm section, like he worked them you know, they got so tight together and so synced up. And part of that is because there was the combination. We didn't have a budget that where we could afford to take forever in the studio, right? We had to know what we were doing and go in and nail it. And so we didn't want to be doing too much experimentation on our basic tracks and have to go back and redo and rework. Right. Also, this was pre pro tools. And so you could cut tape a little, but you had to know what, what the fuck you were doing when you went in the studio. <laughs> yeah. And Gavin complained later, he would talk about post-Pro Tools, like going in with bands who would do sloppy tracks or not link up. And he'd go, hey man, we got to get this together. And they would go, well, that's your job. And they'd go out to dinner and go out partying and expect that the producer's job was to edit everything into submission. And I think that became really common and i mean you also hear stories about bands that would go into the studio do a bunch of blow track and then the you know producer would call in studio musicians to replace everything they'd done and the band would come back the next day and go like wow we sounded amazing i knew we were <laughs> killing it but i didn't know we were this good <laughs> like you can yeah. hear stories about that but gavin was just very old school and he'd grown up in at like air studios, he'd grown up in in London, starting as a T-boy and working his way up to the tape op and working his way up, you know, spot erasing like Kate Bush's vocals. And he had mm-hmm. stories about being in the studio with Trevor Horn when they were doing like, he did like a few days of owner of a lonely heart. where they would be tracking drums and you know trevor horn would be like smoking doobies laying under the the mixing console and like wouldn't say a word for two hours they would do reels and reels of takes and then he would sit up and go okay get a piece of paper and tell gavin like okay intro fill and first four bars from take six next eight bars from take 12. Next two bars from take three. And and he would give him this insane comp and be like, okay, going out for Curry and would leave Gavin there to cut the tape to cut the two inch tape and make the, make that track happen. And I mean, that's how it used to happen in those studios. So he, he understood, he was listening so hard to everything and worked us so hard to get it right. Even months before we got to the studio. And so it was the best possible thing for us. And, and I was really happy that, you know, we, we had to have the humility because otherwise the album would have sucked and we wanted to do <laughs> great. You know, I, I can be really, um, how can I say this? I can, I, I can be very dismissive, you know, and talk about how lucky we were and we were just in the right place, right? But we also worked our asses off and Gavin was a great collaborator in doing that.
2: He sounds like he's a producer right up my alley. I've always equated it, you know, you want to go run the marathon. Don't start training a week before you got to put the six months in before you go do it. And I always want to be prepared to go to this day going, I don't, you know, you want to talk about relying on pro tools and fixing it. You want stuff to get sterile real quick. That's a good way to do it. You know, it just, just sounds. Sounds like he he completely and, and, and again, you guys were receptive to it and it just made you that much more of a cohesive unit. And that's awesome.
0: And even with that stuff happens in the studio. I mean, one of, you know, as far as studio memories of all I want, it's I remember breaking down in tears trying to do we're doing the harmonies on the chorus, which have all these, you know, seconds and sevenths. Uh-huh. There's a lot of tight seconds on them. I was really into Bulgarian women's choir stuff. You can't tell it <laughs> from the rest of the music, <laughs> but I was really into singing these tight second harmonies, right? Where it's like, they're going up and down in this half step, but they're, you're singing, singing these seconds. And it, we had a 12 string that I could not keep in tune. And We had a 12 string on it and it was already on the verge of sour. And then I was doing these super tight harmonies and they were just impossibly sour. And there was nothing I could do to get them right. And I was like, I am the worst fucking singer. We've been, I've been beating my head against the wall for hours. And we were going through everything in the track, trying to figure out what it was. And we eventually realized that the bass track was out of tune. Yeah. And, and just enough, that, you know, for the, once again, back before everything was auto-tuned and everything, it was just sloppy enough that before you had these really tight, weird harmonies, especially with the 12 string, it all kind of worked. But eventually we were just like, it was hell. We couldn't get it right. It was, it, it almost didn't make, we almost gave up on the song entirely because the harmonies were impossible. And then found out the bass was out of tune. Dean recut <laughs> the bass in like, you know, 10 minutes. Got a tuner, tuned up, recut the bass, and all of a sudden the harmonies worked and everything was okay. That's awesome. Silly stuff like that would happen.
2: <laughs> That's so interesting because I've, I've had that exact thing happen. You, can, you, you you The last thing you think is it's the bass being out of tune. You're blaming it on the 12 string. You're blaming it on the backing vocal. And it's the one thing you didn't think of. You change that and, and, and there you have it. We're going to jump into the track now. The song is three minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, The first six seconds uh, is like four bars of of a straightforward uh, rock beat that starts the song, just the drums. And the first two uh, words of the song, Nothing So, come in just by itself. And when uh, Glenn says loud, Nothing So Loud, that's when the bass and the guitars come in. Nothing so
1: loud.
2: There's acoustic guitars pan both left and right. I almost think, is that where I'm hearing the 12 string in there as well? Yeah, 12 string doubled.
0: Gavin was a big big guy on the doubling. Was, <laughs> and I,
2: I, I wrote in my notes. It's a very airy sound with lots of separation. I love the, the separation in, in, in this verse.
1: Nothing so loud Searing when we lie Truth is not kind
2: you said neither am I. Nothing so loud as hearing when we lie. The truth is not kind, and you've said neither am I. What's going on there? I don't know. What do you think's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's, I mean Do you know? Yeah, I've always asked I always ask people, do you do you like, was this something in a in a in a book that you had some lyrics written down? And you thought it's good, good enough for this, or, or or did this actually come from some inspiration? I think
0: in those days, and and I uh, could probably uh, take some really valid criticism that I am a little more Howard Jonesy, straight didactic. I always know what I'm talking about, and it's all pop psychology at this point. <laughs> Back in those days, there was a lot more painting of words, and I would kind of know what it was about. But I, I had a lot of cop out for uh, uh, I don't know, man. It's just what I wrote, and so sometimes. Sometimes it's like that. For me, this song is about this tension between the desire to be present in the world and how difficult it can be, right? To tell the truth, to be honest, to really say what's happening, how much it hurts to be lied to. But the truth isn't exactly always what you want to hear either, right? Yeah. If there's a way to sum up the beginning. And there's an element of it that is more generalized, but there's also an element of it that feels relational. Mm -hmm. But I, I used to summarize the whole song in terms of saying it's about like those beautiful passing moments where everything's fine, where everything's perfect, where you're aware you're not in the past, you're not in the future and the present is something you're open to and how that's a really difficult state to keep. Right, yeah, it's like yeah. it's something you keep forgetting, and and in some ways, I have better language, you know, now that I've done more meditation, studied mindfulness, studied you know, there's a lot of particularly Buddhist language around it about that process of kind of constant remembering and forgetting that we remember to be in the moment, we remember to be present, but then. The ego takes us back to the past, takes us back to regret, takes us back to worrying about the future, takes us back to distraction, you know, especially with all the, you know, multitude of, you know, I'm looking at an iPad right next to me on the desk. All
2: all the gadgets we carry with ourselves on a daily basis. All
0: the screens that make it really difficult for us to ever settle into a moment anymore the greatest beauty and the greatest creativity comes out of empty moments. You know, there's, mm-hmm. I forget, there's a, some quote of, this is a video of some guy uh, abusing a, a, a guy trying to, there's some kid like practicing saxophone in front of the Holocaust Museum in New York. And this guy just starts yelling at him.
3: You any kind of artist? Anybody know who you are? Maybe anybody else wants to enjoy the peace and quiet. This is one of the most important places in all of North America, who are you? Who are you? You miserable presumptuous, no talent. You're no artist. An artist respects the silence It serves as the foundation of creativity. You obviously don't have the talent. You don't have enough respect for yourself or other people, or what it is to express yourself. In music, or any other form of creativity. And I'm an NYU film school graduate, sucker and the School of Visual Arts, and the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. You suck. You are no talent. If you really had talent, go practice, and then get yourself a gig, instead of ruining the end of the day for everybody down here. You disgrace. You are everything that's gone wrong in this world. You are self-consumed, no talent, mediocre piece of shit.
0: And it's this video. And at some point, the guy who's saying, you know, because he's playing badly, he's just like, silence, silence is
2: the womb of all creativity.
0: I I go back to that thought. Silence is the womb of all creativity. It's a beautiful thing to say, even if you're yelling at a saxophonist on the street in New York. but. And there's a a degree of that in this song, not necessarily the first verse. We're only on the first verse, but back to the yeah. first verse. Nothing so loud as hearing when we lie. The truth is not kind. You've said neither am I. It's, yeah, about aiming for truth. It's hard to do. It feels feels crappy to to gloss over things. And it also feels crappy when people are, I'm just saying how I feel, man.
1: Right? <laughs>
2: i had no idea i like i like where you're going with this i I like that no. concept that's something that that i've never heard a, a a songwriter say before and i hadn't i had no idea looking at these lyrics and and it's so crazy to 30 years after hearing this song as a college kid to be talking to you about this and going wow that's a inter- really interesting concept for a song <laughs> it's
0: also probably why it doesn't get placed in a lot of commercials it's not like a straightforward i love you baby it's not walking on sunshine I mean it's odd because the the chorus you know it's all i want us to feel this way be this close feel you know feel the same and the line before that right the air outside so soft saying everything right that's once again the natural world not trying you know it's a little bit of the lily lilies of the field right
2: sure, <laughs> uh, sure. they toil
0: not but neither do they want and <laughs> it's you know the natural world is just busy being it's not Trying to be anything. It doesn't have to worry about telling the truth. It simply is. And meanwhile, we are full of clamor. We're talking and inventing and creating and narrating and lying to ourselves, lying to other people, making up stories about what things mean. And even in truth telling, do we, do we, are we saying, I think this? You know, because you can tell the truth about how you feel, but the truth about how you feel is the the tip of the iceberg, right? It's only how you feel. And you can't argue with the truth of a feeling, right? It's your experience internally happened. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's based on good information. It doesn't mean, and, you know, even in talking about difficult things, I think, you know, part of the tension we're dealing with these days is everybody, while facts do matter, facts matter greatly, um, nobody will listen to you if you disregard their feelings. If somebody is telling you, "I believe this because my trust has been deeply undercut," whether it's in the political system, in in the medical system, these other ways. If you want to have, you know, in my case, let's say I have friends who are in the anti anti-vax world. If you want to have a conversation with somebody you care about, even if you feel that their informational channels have maybe been corrupted if you can't listen to why they lost their trust, where they're coming from, you know, we're all seeing the things we want to see based on our personal perspectives. We're all full of confirmation bias. And so we're all lying to ourselves all the time in different ways to different degrees. But we all think we're the exception to that. (laughs) <laughs> we all think we're the one rational person in the world and that everybody else is irrational. And if you don't walk into a conversation understanding that you are also you know, subject to cognitive bias, you are also subject to self-delusion, you are also emotionally guided first and logically guided second, and you are probably not so much rational as rationalizing and using all your intelligence to rationalize what you already think is true. like. If you don't walk into conversations like that, then soon you just escalate and soon you just argue, or you just hang out with people who believe all the same things you do for similar reasons. And you never challenge yourself and never question yourself. That's boring too. So <laughs> I'm going
2: <laughs> yeah. oh, to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, Glenn, you got me thinking about stuff right now. My head with, with my personality, my head's going in a million directions. You got me some, doing some deep deep thinking about myself and everything you're saying is, is really true. And I think the human ego sometimes doesn't let us uh, say the things that you're saying right now uh, to ourselves of like, yeah, I think I'm right. And everybody else in this room's wrong. Well, that's, that's my perception, but that's not necessarily the truth.
0: Yeah. And which doesn't mean that we aren't
2: occasionally right.
0: Right. I mean, uh, and there is, you know, once again, if you're talking vaccine stuff and I know people have really deep, once again, I know people who lost their trust, in the medical community at great expense, right? At the death of people they loved that medicine couldn't save or in working with people who are at the far edges of, you know, the side effects of medicine. And if all you ever see are the worst case scenarios of that, you're not going to trust, you know, so there's a lot of reasons that people lose their trust. Like, and that I really understand and have a lot of compassion for one of the things I have trouble understanding is why people would put their medical faith in a guy like Brett Weinstein, who's not a medical doctor, number one, and is is like kind of drowning in his own white male grievance. Uh, (laughs) Like, I don't understand that kind of person being who you then place your trust in. And that, that part's hard for me. Although I understand that that grievance once again is is a a common thing with with white men but (laughs) and and you know that we have a tendency to look you know if you're looking at things like ivermectin like putting faith in a, a couple of studies which actually the only major studies of that have been you know were found to be highly plagiarized and falsified but it's a it's a narrative that fits so well into uh distrust that it's Really deeply appealing. It's so emotionally, overwhelmingly appealing that the lack of true science around it is that narrative would fit so well and be so appealing, so deeply appealing. And as well, uh, ignoring uh, vaccine science is similarly appealing uh, to to this, you know, idea of the the great fight of you know this David and Goliath fight and. I've seen friends of mine just disregard huge swaths of, you know, well-researched, you know, double-blind evidence and take in stuff that isn't. And I have to know that although I think I'm perfectly rational, I was raised by scientists. I like to think that I'm on the right side of the actual <laughs> research, but I'm not a freaking doctor either. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And my trust lies in different places. And these answers sound good to me, but I'm also willing to say I could be totally wrong and deluded about any number of things. In some of these cases, I don't think I am, but you know, it it doesn't mean I can't talk to people who respectfully, who believe in something differently than what I believe in and want to understand them and still love them and still be actually close friends with them. And I I think as, as time goes on, those skills are more and more important because we are being fractionalized and broken apart. And I don't believe in a conspiracy around this. I think it's just a fact of modern life and human psychology and the power of social media and the power of tribalism. And it's not a shitstorm storm that I'm convinced we're gonna survive, but I think it's really important to, to <laughs> be aware
2: of. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with, with that last statement. Um, well, let let, let, let I'll anyway, we'll try to I get digress. back. In, yeah, we'll, we'll try to get back into the song. Wow, I I you took me on a ride just now, Glenn, and and I'm with with my friggin' head. I'm like in another world right now, thinking of all these things. I'm I'm gonna try right. to reel myself in here. Uh, I'm nothing if at, not
0: tangential. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, we're we're at the uh, we're at the pre-chorus now. We're at the pre-chorus.
0: We're at the second the fourth line of the song.
2: <laughs> and and we're only 23 seconds in the song. That's what I love about this tune. I feel that there's no. There's there's no fat on this
1: song.
2: The lyric is and the air outside so soft is saying everything. And you repeat the word everything. In this part, the guitars are, pan- uh, there's a guitar panned left that comes in here playing like in a uh, arpeggiated Tasty Lick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, B- the B3 organ has a swell on the word everything that leads into chorus number one. I love that.
1: All I want.
2: Chorus number one comes really quick. If you get to a chorus before a minute, that's fast. We're at 39 seconds.
0: Don't bore us. Get to the chorus.
2: Yeah, don't bore us. Get to the chorus. And uh, uh, a new clean guitar picking pattern comes in here, panned a bit to the right with like kind of a chorusy effect on it. And uh, the organ is holding down pads here underneath, but it becomes uh, becomes noticeable as the other instruments decay before the, the next uh, instrumental section.
0: Yeah. And that's Dean, our bass player on all the keys on these, by the way. Oh, cool. Kind of his first experience with playing organ, I guess. It was another one of those things we learned from Gavin was like, Dean would initially tend to to voice things really fully on the Hammond. And that Mm -hmm. thing with the Hammond, it's like, one note's great. An interval is a lot. A triad is a whole lot. And just learning to like keep that right hand, left hand off, left hand works the Leslie, you know, learning the pedals, like, and so we'd all be sitting there like pulling stops, you know, Gavin was teaching us how to pull the stops out. So Dean be playing, we'd be pulling stuff. Like it was, it was this great interactive experience. Uh, Dean did awesome on the keyboards, though.
2: No, but the keys, you know, especially B three, you, you don't realize what those can do to guitars and complement them. And if yeah. you layer them right, sometimes you don't even hear them, but you feel them, and that's so important. I feel that's that's part of this chorus. And the lyric is, uh, "All I want is to feel this way." To, and here you get the first harmony in the song on to be this close to feel the same, all I want is to feel this way. The evening speaks, I feel it say. So you get you get harmonies on each of those lines, and they're they're kind of odd harmonies as you were speaking of a moment ago. And the other thing I love uh, here, Glenn, is you know this is uh, not a very fast song, and I feel like the shuffle on the hi hat that is happening mm-hmm. here had to be there because it keeps the chorus it, it kind of makes the chorus feel like it's faster than it is
0: yeah randy loved 16ths on
1: that
2: <laughs> it's like, i
0: think they i think they need to be there it's
2: a signature
0: thing with with like his his deal and he's got he had such a great internal feel on them too that it's yeah it's not staccato it's a very rolling uh, a, a rolling feeling.
2: Yeah, because I, I, I said to myself, "I'm like, if this was just a straight hi hat, a closed hi, even an open hi hat, without that shuffle, this thing's not moving
0: here." Mm-hmm. Yeah, the internal groove he got on that is really great.
2: It's awesome, and you know, harking back to what you said a moment ago, I don't know if this could make it into a commercial. I mean, these lyrics here. I mean, this is pr- a pretty straightforward lyric in the sense that I feel like anybody could kind of grasp this. And is that kind of what you were going for here? I don't know. We weren't thinking
0: super commercially, if that makes sense. I mean, we weren't thinking of having hits, and I mean, we can talk about that later. Like, in that, (laughs) um, we thought of ourselves as, you know, even the word alternative band wasn't a thing. We didn't think of ourselves as a commercial band.
4: Hey, don't go anywhere Hey everybody, if you like Chris to Makes a Podcast, I'm going to assume that you like music podcasts, and if you like music podcasts, check out One Hit Thunder. Each week, we dive into a one-hit wonder, and along the way, we gain some knowledge and have some laughs. Lou Vega, Crazy Town, Harvey Danger, The New Radicals, aha! We're over 100 episodes in now, and to paraphrase the great Matthew Wilder, nothing's going to break our stride. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. And now on with the show.
0: We were on a major label, um, but we went with Sony because Sony, you know, Columbia gave us total creative control. We got to pick our producer. We got to pick what was on the album. And uh, we had our A&R guy for this album was this guy, Ron Oberman. Basically, he set up meetings with a whole bunch of producers we wanted to meet with and we met with them. We chose Gavin. We got to work at the studio we wanted to, and we didn't even talk singles until the album was done. We made the record that we wanted to make, and so and the '90s were weird. I think in that, like, we didn't even get signed on purpose. We had, I think, artistic ambitions, but not commercial ambitions, and we had this kind of pugnacious, like, we don't need to play your game, like, this attitude about it. And, and if you remember the era, too, that was the era where, like, Counting Crows wouldn't sing Mr. Jones or he would, like, totally obscure the melody of it.
2: Nirvana wouldn't play their hit. It was a Pearl thing. Jam wouldn't play yeah.
0: their hit. Like, yeah. everybody was signing to major labels and then kind of spitting into their faces, right? Acting <laughs> like it was a really weird era. Like, nobody would do that anymore. Like, people want to do well now.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a, a very, very strange time. And I remember thinking that was odd back then, even even as a younger person and being in a band myself. I'm like, I, I, I never quite got that.
0: I, I don't know why that was the vibe at the time, but we had that vibe. We would have rather have been cool than been successful. And what the 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 irony of it was, we ended up being successful for half a moment and losing all our cool. <laughs> we had we, we were cool up until we had a hit, and then we were hated. Uh, but that's a, that's a whole other story. But that part's trippy.
2: The part after the chorus, I, I like this instrumental section. I'm calling it like a post chorus instrumental section. It only happens once, and in this section mimics the pre-chorus, but the arpeggiated guitar here is, is front and center. It's a different sound. It's not, a, not something you hear in the rest of the song, and I just think this is a great setup for verse two. Nothing so cold
1: It's closing heart when all we need is to free
2: the soul Brave, the verse two lyric is nothing so cold as closing the heart when all we need is to free the soul, but we wouldn't be that brave. I know. Mm-hmm. And do you recall again, these lyrics being the same as the demo or, or was there some, some change going on here? And did, did Gavin have a saying that I think this, think this part could be stronger?
1: No,
0: I think that remained. I think I, 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 I greatly reduced the first verse. I think this verse, and once again, Gavin, like, would always just go, could you do better? (laughs) (laughs) He would leave it there. He would never, he never like suggested a single word to me. Like, what if you said it this way? He was always just like, what if you said it differently? You go figure it out.
2: That's awesome though.
0: And so if I'm thinking about the, the second verse, and I mean, second verse, you know, once again, pretty straightforward, right? Closing the heart when all you need is to. It's really hard to face life and get. I mean, this goes back into the philosophical stuff, but like we spend a lot of time running from discomfort and distracting ourselves, getting lost in grievance getting lost in ambition, getting lost in things that I don't think really matter. And the the trick of like the strength of vulnerability is that instead of like not feeling uh, the hard feelings is like gaining capacity around them, but not stuffing them down, but like growing bigger in their face. Like maybe that's for me just because I, I feel like my real work has always been, uh, there are people who are entertainers there are people who are you know are artists who are dealing with intellectual work or or breaking down stylistic walls or virtuosity or you know there are all these kind of lanes of artistic expression or or simply entertainment capability like singing dancing making people happy like putting on something big and i feel like for me i've always been trying to find some emotional or spiritual truth and when i was a kid i i just felt so much i didn't understand how anyone else uh operated in the world it felt like if everybody was having the same emotions i was feeling then everybody would always be on the verge of exploding like i was always on the verge of crying like i just like i i had such strong emotions i didn't know what to do with them
2: that's weird you're a lead singer in a band hmm. i guess and but <laughs> <laughs> but with that, there's this kind of, you know, what do you do with
0: that, and how do you narrate that? And I, I think probably because my father turned me on, like with my, I had a bar mitzvah. I was, you know, raised in a a uh, reform, reform Judaism, which was very ethical, uh, but not very uh, mystical, right? Not very spiritual. My my understanding or my experience of it. and I know there's a lot of mystical judaism and 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 spiritual work in the in the Jewish world, but my experience of it was uh, very much about kind of, you know, ethics obligation to others doing the right thing in the world. It, it was like, the story is God, you don't need to believe in any of that. If you don't, it's like early on, I was like, I think this is fake. He's like, it might be, but the important thing is to be, be good to people. Can you do that? I'm like, yeah, sure. That makes sense. So, but my dad was taking me to the Zen Priory for meditation courses and giving me, you know, uh, books on Sufism, like Idris Shah books, the Nasruddin books, and giving me the Dao Te Ching. Like, and so he was giving me this kind of more Eastern education, which had more of that appeal to the spirit and not spirit in this kind of immortal soul sense of that, but in the, the sense of the emotional life that is not about achieving worldly things, but is uh, more centered on like being truly present in the world like opening your heart further seeing how far you can open it and not curling into anger or hurt yeah and and kind of questioning the illusions of the modern world and you know the acquisition of money the acquisition of fame the acquisition of you know all the markers of success that we're taught to have and so so for me also And, you know, these things are found, you know, Mary Oliver, you know, always talks about, you know, they're in the natural world. Everyone talks about how they're in the natural world. And so this song is always kind of pulling between, you know, it's the air, the evening, the the simplicity and openness of the natural world with the conflict of human relation and narration and the the difficulty of, you you know, living a human life.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, really, you know, when you first started saying, "Wait, what do you think it's about? you kind of, I thought you were just going to be like, these are kind of just some words I threw down, but, but this is pretty deep, man. What What's here, you know, it's, well, it's a lot more than what it appears to it's me. It's
0: been said in deeper ways by smarter people, but it, it's, <laughs> my you know, yeah. <laughs> but it's also, you know, and if you'd chosen walk on the ocean, it literally would have been like, actually, I have no idea what it means. And I wrote that lyric in 15 minutes because we were recording a demo of it and Todd was like, can you put a vocal down and can you just write something and change it later? And that was the lyric that's gobbledygook. Uh, but this song was yeah. About that particular tension. And it's, it's not the uh, definitive work in that respect, but I mean, I feel like I've been circling around that same subject matter in different ways for 30 years you know (laughs) it's like how do you be a human being and also show up how do you not shut down how do you not let the pain of life delude you into being asleep and how do you not get just addicted to a feeling of the joy of expansion right you know trying to always seek a peak experience because that's peak experiences are also just peak experiences like yeah why does epiphany why isn't it our constant state right we just have these moments and at some level like happiness is about being able to just almost like a paint by uh, like a connect the dots of you know you yeah. create the shape by fleeting re- moments remembering a moment where you weren't so worried about the little stuff or even worried about what you imagine to be the big stuff that actually isn't and you forget and you come back to it and you forget and you come back to it. And that's, that's like, that's what a human life is. Or you just give up and watch TV. <laughs> Which is good too. Which is okay. It's okay. It's sad, but it's
2: <laughs> Getting into pre-chorus too. I, I like this pre-chorus because there's one subtle difference. lyric is in the air outside so soft uh, and the first time you say is saying everything and here you, you say confessing everything mm-hmm. and you repeat everything do you recall again was that something where uh you know uh produ- the producer gavin mckillop said you know uh, don't you have anything else to say probably he said yeah Okay, so we may be able to give him credit credit for that because I don't know, <laughs> but I I love stuff like that. I love one just one word change. You know, it just it's it it still feels the same as the first time. The pre-chorus, the melody's the same, but it's that one slight change. It yeah. just keeps it in- interesting to to the listener.
0: And I've always liked songs that switch perspective. You know, if it's a he, she, we, right, you, I, they, like switching things on the chorus really subtly for me makes a song about how can I say that there, there, there's a, like this pull between specificity and generality in, in art and some stuff, you can be really specific, you know, thinking of country songs, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in one of his podcasts. He has one on like uh, the king of tears. I think it's called great episode. You should listen to it, but he's talking about specificity in country music. It's like, you know, it, it, that he stopped loving her today. He's talking about like, you know, he had underlined and he had underlined in red every single I love you, you know, it's this letter. It's like, it just, it's pure narrative. It's absolute. You know exactly what is happening, where the settings are. And there's also this thing between, uh, you know a larger philosophical discussion. I like things that are ambivalent and ambivalent in the sense of, Ambivalent gets misused into meaning you don't really care about something. I'm ambivalent. I don't know. But ambivalent is actually that you feel strongly in oppositional ways about something. You really love something and you really don't want to do it right. (laughs) You want to, and you don't. Ambivalence is that dissonance going back to like a, a second harmony where notes are beating against each other. For me, I like complex harmony where notes beat and I like ambivalent emotions where where the emotion is not just being happy, it's being happy with a good dollop of melancholy and a backdrop and knowing that the happiness
2: won't last. You just summed up the choruses. That's how I feel about this chorus that you say that the harmony choices that you picked here. It is a very poppy chorus, probably one of the more poppy choruses at least at the time that you guys had, but it has an underlying sense of melancholy you're speaking of, so
0: yeah, that tension and that. You know, and going into the, you know, the bridge, which is this huge expansion and freedom and then heading back into the tent, you know, and so I I like to have songs that are not super specific because then I feel like 10 years later, rather than remembering like, oh, I remember that day when that thing happened and I wrote that song about that thing. It's like, oh, I remember this set of feelings. I still have that set of feelings. (laughs)
2: like
0: still going on. <laughs> and I mean that's the difference in where I the place I write from. And uh, you know the the unfortunate side effect of that is there's maybe a lot of repetition, but I also notice the teachers that I really appreciate whether it's somebody like Mary Oliver or Ticknot Han or you know it's like they say a lot of the same stuff over and over. Uh, you know, if and if your message is, you know, usually like wake up to this moment, And it's really hard to wake up to this moment. You're going to repeat that over and over again. But the waking up to this moment is where you are able to do things like listen to other people, be more compassionate, be more loving, contribute more to others, find peace in yourself. Like, I think that's the base root of that. And there are other philosophies that would say, just start faking it till you make it (laughs) which
2: which also works well chorus two is the same as as, as chorus one uh the lyrics Mm -hmm. the same all i want is to feel this way to be this close to feel the same all i want is to feel this way the evening speaks i feel it say and then we get into this bridge which is i've i love this bridge it is just such a left turn but just it's awesome and it just lifts right here Uh, The lyric is, and it won't matter now, whatever happens will be. Through the air speaks of all will never be. It won't trouble me. The organ pads come in here, super loud, and a pair of slightly overdriven uh, stereo guitars. I think come in here. They're just—they're just kind of there. They're not too loud. And there's this kind of like noodly guitar I wrote, uh, panned off to the left, and huh. uh, the the vocals just soaring here, and and it just this bridge just lifts. It just really lifts here.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's big bridge, and it's got one little. Uh, what is the chord that it's going to? <laughs> it's doing a GCD. It kind of modally shifts a little, like there's one clever coordinate. I forget what it is, uh, but it's like the five of five or something, you know, it, it, it's like major where it would have been minor. These little lifts. And I think we were trying to do Gavin referred to them. It was a, a Peter Gabriel reference of the David Rhodes, distant distorted guitar, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Where, yeah. <laughs> or,
0: or kind of the That's power what it chords is. deep in the background. Yeah. Uh, Rhythm of the Heat style, you know? <laughs> it's
1: like.
0: And the 16th, right? He stays on those, but he really opens up and straightens out. Yeah, I, I'm very, I'm proud of that bridge. I'll just say
2: that. Well, and, and the, next, the, the, the lead break in this song from 216 to 231, the guitar almost sounds like, I, I can't really tell, it, like maybe a phaser and a chorus and a flanger on it. It's, it's Leslie. Just a Leslie. Is it a Leslie? That's, yeah. Okay, that's what that is. It sounds like a combination of all all three of what I just said, but it is a Leslie. That's how we uh, got that roll at the end
0: of it. Ba-da-da-da. Yeah. At the very end. So he's playing the Leslie throughout and kind of playing with the velocity of that. And then at the end, really. And once again, this was before Leslie Simulators. So they actually had like a preamp interface with that.
2: You stumped me there. I did not realize that was a Leslie. I love, I love that part. And this part, this lead, talk about tasteful where he doesn't overplay you know the lead is this is essentially the third pre-chorus the guitar lick is playing the melody you know from the pre-chorus which that's so odd to do for a solo if you're going to play the play play a a familiar lick at that point you're going to maybe do something from the chorus or the intro vocal of the song and it's a really neat thing you did there
0: yeah well that's todd and i think he came in with that i forget at what point i remember there was it was either marvin etzioni or it was you know, it might have even been tony berg when we were talking to producers talking about talking about george harrison guitar solos and like was kind of differentiating like george harrison did a lot of melodic grabbing on his solos uh, like and you can sing every single george harrison guitar solo oh, they're not yeah they're not in that mode of Be the but you know they're not in a lick mode
2: at it's all not guitar right? wankery at all
0: it's not wankery and there are great licks i mean like mark knopfler is this incredible combination of melodic and licks oriented guitar playing right? yeah he reuses the bit like four times in different songs but he's a god and todd is not like a he is our lead guitarist, but he's not a typical lead guitarist. He he was never in a bar band where he just had to jam it out for two hours. And so like all his solos are composed and he very much took that, that George Harrison idea of the composed guitar solo, something that's taking the melody, but expanding on it, you know, it's, compositional. And so once again, I I feel like almost all his solos are singable in that same way which is part of the signature sound of, of
2: the band. I'm sure there's songs out there. I cannot think of one. If any of the listeners can uh, write us at our Facebook page, our group, and let us know if you know another solo in a song that is based off the pre-chorus of a song <laughs> that tripped me out with this man. And I, and Glenn, I never, I've heard this song for 30 years. And I never thought about it till I started dissecting. I'm like, mm. wait a second. The the guitar solo is the pre-chorus that just never I can't recall it happening. I'm sure it has, and if someone knows yeah. of a song, let let me know because I can't think of one. It's so it's such a cool it's such a cool thing. Um, chorus three is the first double chorus in the song, not a true double chorus because the end uh, the the back half of it kind of takes off, and the and and it's such a cool rub at the end. The backing vocal and the lead vocal are happening at the same time, but they work so well.
1: All I want.
2: I'm going to comb through this real quick, and then I have a, I have the question of the day for you here. But uh, all I want is to feel this way, to be this close, to feel the same. All I want is to feel this way, the evening speaks, I feel it say. And on the third line, all I want is to feel this way, a high harmony come, is introduced here on the word all. It's a super high harmony there that I just, I just love. Um, and then the back half is where the vocals are happening. The backing vocal is, all I want is to feel this way, as you're saying and it feels so close. To be this close, to feel the same, and you're saying, let it take me, yeah. All I want is to feel this way, let it hold me so, and then the evening speaks, I feel it say, the backing vocal, as you're saying, I can feel it say, and when you're saying, feel it say, it's lining up at that point, it's running directly mm-hmm. into the backing vocal, and they come together kind of in unison yeah. there, which is so cool and then uh, that great ending harmony there uh, with the B3 slowly fading out to end the song, and my question of the day at this point is I started racking my brain. I know band, bands do re records, there's radio mixes, but the one on the record is different from the one in, in the video. I'm going back and forth. There was a couple different versions at the end. Do you, yeah. remember, doing, do you remember doing different edits and why?
0: Basically, the company wanted a single, a radio mix with a, a famous name. And so Michael Brower was hot at the time, still is. God, that guy's been mixing forever and he's, he's an amazing mixer. And We were actually really shitty about it at the time. We're like, oh, sounds exactly the way we want. Why do we need a radio mix? They're just going to smash it anyway. But they were really insistent. And uh, so Michael did his mix and it was, you know, very much of the time. It was like, you know, that was the beginning of stuff being more like really hyped compression. So the things were like kind of almost people don't mix like this anymore, I think. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think people kind of mix for earbuds and iPhones now, to some degree.
2: But Absolutely, man. In the different, day, different game,
0: you were mixing for radio and there was a certain kind of compression in a way of pre-smashing it before the, you know, the radio ran it through their, their yeah. do, you know, probably a dominator too, right? They all had the effects. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: but that but, vocals just hitting you right between the eyes. Yeah.
0: And so, I really like his mix now at the time. I think we were like, Oh, record sounds the way we wanted. This is bullshit. This is record company, but we went with it. And so the video and the, and the single were the Michael Brower mix. And honestly, yes. he did a, he did a fantastic job on it. It's got like a great radio and, you know, his, I don't know if he had done his, he's, he's has these really interesting, like, multi-band and subgroup like you know compression busting. Well uh, he,
2: he was and he was running some kind of gate or something because earlier in the song uh-huh. on the second on the second verse, there and I'm going crazy. And I called my producer Chris earlier this morning and I said, listen to the second line on this on this version of the song It's driving me nuts because nothing's so cold as closing the heart when all we need.
1: Nothing's so cold Closing
2: heart when all we need is to free On one version, it just sounds like you're saying closing the heart. There's no as there. Nothing so
1: cold. Closing heart
0: when all we need. He's probably gating it. Cause I do a lot. It's closing. I do a lot of, it, it, it,
2: a lot of pickup. I call it a pickup. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and and it's a gate on his mix. That's not there. And I called Chris and what the heck is going on here? Honestly,
0: when I record my vocals now, I find myself like in logic, a lot of the time. Cr- cutting and cranking those like, <laughs> like uh-huh. those little pickups I'll do ands and I'm like, Oh crap. It's inaudible. Don't want to re-sing it. But uh, you know, I'll boost those things all the time. So, yeah, probably he had a gate on it and just didn't make it through.
2: Yeah, my bass player Roger, uh, he he pisses me off with that. He'll be like, "Dude, it's a throwaway word. Stop that," you know. And I and and I used to hate him for it, and and now he I get it. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. Hi, Roger. But uh, it's like sometimes just at the same time, sometimes those little beautiful mistakes are, are part of who you are and your emotion. And, and, and sometimes it works. And uh, I just yeah. found I just found that to, to be interesting.
0: Yeah. It, the Different mix, different, different attitude.
2: Right. on. Well, um, listen, we're getting we're getting uh, near the end here. I just want to thank you so much. I know you just got home from the road. And the last thing I want to do is jump on something like this. You've been super gracious with your time. I love love this love this song and uh oh thank you uh, i just uh it 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 was really cool to to break it apart with you and before we leave uh is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with what you got going on with the band coming up tours solo what you got
0: well uh we just got off a two-month tour put out uh a new album uh with very little fanfare, so if you haven't heard about it, go look for it, because that's the only way you're going to find it. Uh, <laughs> so Toad the Wet Sprocket, starting now. Starting now. And uh, I am... So we're going to be out in the summer with uh, naked Ladies and Gin Blossoms, doing kind of a 90s thing. Awesome. Uh, so that's June and July. Uh, we had Robin Wilson too. on
2: the show last year. So oh, that's, sweet. Uh,
0: yeah, really cool. Yeah. So we're doing that, and then we're going to be i'll be putting out a solo record late summer early fall probably i got another one in the can so well not quite in the can i got all tracked but kind of finishing that up so just keeping on keeping on right on man well
2: thank you so much glenn all right thank you great talking to you great to meet you
4: hey everybody don't touch that dial there's plenty more christa makes a podcast after a few words from our sponsors If you're a diehard Springsteen
5: fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nemo the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform. And we hope to see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.
4: Hey, if you need a unique, thoughtful, and inexpensive gift for a friend or loved one, check out iloveenamelpins.com. Make someone's day by giving them a little present to show you care. Over 80 different pins are available, everything from cats and dogs to your favorite celebrities. And to top it off, you can use the discount code CHRISTAMAKES at checkout to save 30% on your order. iloveenamalpins.com. Give them something to wear that shows that you care.
1: As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know.
2: Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for CHRISTAMAKES a podcast, all you have to do is email your song via MP3 only and bio to you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is the Lausketeers from Westchester, New York, featuring Ginger Val on vocals and guitar, Da Changsta on drums and percussion, and El Chivo on bass and backup vocals. Here's a snippet of their song Diner Nights in Riverdale.
3: with chris and chris all
4: right man well that was a very interesting episode i don't know that we've ever had a guest give us so much insight as to the inspiration of the song and yeah i knew this song had some meaning uh when you listen to you know i'm like you chris
2: i've heard this song for 30 years loved it but never realized there was so much behind this one well, it's incredible. Yeah, because when I, he he was kind of joking cuz I said, "What are you saying here?" after the first verse. He's like, "What do you think I'm saying?" You know? <laughs> and yeah. and, he, and he had for listeners can't see his facial expression, but he had a grin ear to ear and I, and, and of course I laughed. Uh, and I thought really like he was going to go with uh, you know, as he said earlier in the episode, he's like, you know what? This song was didn't almost didn't make the album. It was just kind of a song we weren't thinking about. And I thought he was going to say, yeah, this was just kind of like some lyrics I just wrote. And then he went into the story. I'm like, wow, there, it, there, there's a lot behind this song. Yeah, and I thought that it was really
4: interesting. And he started talking about this right away when you got into the song. But he talked about those moments in life when you're you're in the present and everything is fine. And you could just live in that moment in the present. And I, that started making me think, and I know I was watching the gears in your head turn too, Chris, is I was thinking about how often I'm living in the present because I feel like, you know, think about the dynamic of you and I. We're always living in the future. It's like, hey, we're going to line up this guest for three months from now. Uh, our bands are doing this tour, this tour, this tour. I, I've i really always, I, I rarely stop and smell the roses. Sometimes I'll text you and say like, dude, it's awesome we had so-and-so. The episode came out today and, like, let's, let's enjoy this today or something because it's easy. I, I don't know. And there, I, I know a lot of people that live in the past, too, which I'm, I'm sure you do, too. I think I tend to, like, not ever enjoy the present because I'm too busy thinking about the future.
2: Yeah, the 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 past and the future are are easy to live in because the past already happened and you can relive that, and the future hasn't happened and you have all the what ifs. Staying in the moment and that's what you know, uh, transcendental meditation and all that stuff is about is to, to stay in the moment, enjoy the uh, the spiritual being of, of right now, and uh, that's hard to do. It's nearly impossible for me to do that, <laughs>
4: and, and I I think yeah, exactly. I think he started referencing a little bit of that too. Maybe. That's why people meditate. It's something that I don't really understand, but maybe I should try to understand.
2: It's so funny. I, I just thought of something. You know, there's been times I've been on stage playing festivals. I'll be in Switzerland playing to thirty thousand people, main stage at some festival. I'm, you know, I'm playing, singing to this audience. My my hands are moving around the fretboard. I'm singing. I'm sweating. There's, there's there's all this energy in the crowd. My bandmates are running around me, and I'm thinking. Did I pay the water bill this month? Right,
4: dude. It's crazy. People, people would never ever think that. And yeah, Chris, I haven't played that big of shows, but I, I played some decently big shows. Same kind of thing. You're thinking about the dumbest stuff. You're up there. Your body, <laughs> your 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 hands, your voice. They're all doing these things that are kind of muscle memory and natural. And it's not that you're not enjoying the but you're thinking about other things. People would never think that that's happening, but it is. Nope. Um, another thing that I thought was really true—I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately too—is that we all think that we're the one rational person in the world. <laughs> you know, like we all think that about ourselves, and it's hard to step outside of yourself and be like, you know, what? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not completely right about this or that. That's a hard thing to do, and you know, in myself, I'm really trying to have moments where I grow. And when I realize them, I like to like vocalize it. Like, Hey, you know, I thought this a week ago, but now I think this, I, I something happened in my experience and try to be, try to be, uh, I feel like the whole world is so set in their ways that it's good to be I don't at least open to ideas, you know?
2: Yeah, uh, emotions are sometimes uh, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And I always give the example, it's like waking up and uh, you're angry about something and I'm gonna show them and you got this email and I'll write the email, but I don't send it right away now. I'll go have breakfast, right. go for a walk, <laughs> 11 o'clock, <laughs> 11.30, I'll come back, sit down and reread it. go, thank God I didn't send that damn thing. I, I do the absolute same thing.
4: And that's why you'll hear, like, that advice of, like, if you're – whatever emotions you're feeling, write it down, you know, and then come back to – I mean, it's, it's smart because if you act purely on, you know, what you're feeling at the moment – You could be a real asshole, you know. Like, not not you, Chris. No, I don't mean you, Chris. I mean, (laughs) I I mean the you meaning everybody. Me, everybody can be a real asshole if you just uh, always act on whatever your instantaneous emotion is.
2: Something else I thought was cool that Glenn uh, touched on was just the fact that they were able, as a young band, to to trust uh, the the producer, to trust Gavin, uh, because you know when you're young, you, you you again. You you think you know everything. There's ego, there's all these other things involved. You're in this, you know, four headed monster that's this band with these other guys. And uh, I really think that uh that was crucial to them having the success they had was was really learning how to be a band through him. And that's uh you know, you you can't put a put a price on that.
4: No, you cannot. And uh, I thought it was really funny, Chris, because I know I don't think that I ever really felt this way. I don't know, maybe maybe you did, but I thought it was funny when he was talking about how You know, and I think he was referencing around the time of All I Want and this album and that that moment in their trajectory that he said that the consensus among him
2: and his bandmates is we'd have rather been cool than successful. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, and and I, I can uh, completely uh, relate to that. You know, when when our my band was young, it was you know, and and you're wanting to buck the system, and we were young punk rockers, and we thought we knew everything, and uh, and we didn't. <laughs> right, right. I still yeah. don't. I still don't. Yeah, but I think you can
4: be cool and successful. I think that's that's what I strive to be i don't know if i'm that but that's what i I strive to be both of those things and uh the one more thing i wrote down that i liked and I, i think in general you know you know the the and everyone who knows me knows i'm not a religious person i'm not a spiritual person i'm not anything and when glenn was kind of reflecting on his his upbringing and he basically said that there was no like mysticism in his Religious slash spiritual background, but the idea that the important thing is to be good to people. And that definitely resonates with me. I had, (laughs) you know, like it's funny, Chris, I, I told you this. Some guy in my old guy in my neighborhood knocks on my door, and I think that he's trying to be a good neighbor, but eventually he's just trying to talk to me about religion or whatever. And I said to him, and I believe this, I said, Hey, man, I don't go to church, I don't do anything like that. But if there is, something out there if there's an afterlife i like to think the fact that i have tried to be a good person tried to be a nice person uh and 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 cared about other people i hope that would be enough that whatever this thing is will let me in and if that's not enough then i don't want to be there that's what i told this guy and i i really feel (laughs) that way you know i'll see you in hell chris Ah, (laughs) (laughs) hell
1: yeah
2: (laughs) And speaking of hell, Chris, this was a hell of an episode this week. It was. I want to thank our guest, Glenn Phillips, from Toad the Wet Sprocket, for coming by today, and we'll see you next week.